0: Will you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 20? We'll consider verses 7 through 15 this morning. In our study of this book, I have tried to make it like you were reading through the Bible, not reading through a systematic theology. According to the systematic theology books, the chapter that we are covering and covered last week, is one of the most hotly debated chapters in all the Bible, Revelation 20. But when you read this book of the Bible, like any other book of the Bible, what it means seems quite plain. And if we believe that God is saying plainly what He means to say, even a child here can appreciate the story that Christ will come one day and conquer. So instead of asking primarily the question, well, how does how does this passage fit into my systematic theology? Instead, we've tried to answer the question, how does this passage fit into the context? And when we ask that question and answer that question, what it does is actually magnify what Jesus Christ will one day do. Christ is coming, and he will one day reclaim the earth, the kingdom of our Lord, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And that's what we'll consider. So my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's today consider Revelation 20. No excuses, no exits. True and just are your judgments. Father, as we bow before your word today, we do pray for that sense of the leading of your spirit. And we do pray for that connection where we find what we do and what is before us. You talk to us about and you make our way plain so that we will, in the end, be able to say that you you led us all the way. But even before the end, we pray that we would have that sense that you were leading us today. And indeed, that's what you wanted for the churches of Asia Minor, as you gave them and told them this prophecy of future things. So Lord, lead us as we look at it again today. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. In studying this passage this morning, a Looney Tunes cartoon came to mind. In an episode where Bugs Bunny and Yosemite Sam are at odds after a widow's wealth. In that episode, Bugs tricks Yosemite into thinking that they would marry the wealthy widow and that they would elope and that they would move away. So what you see is Yosemite ready to pick up and leave. Well, what ends up happening is that Bugs drops a safe on him and it smashes Yosemite into the ground and fictitiously into hell with the devil. And there Yosemite stands before the devil who relates to him that he has been very bad. And Yosemite Sam cries in his defense, the devil made me do it. You know, Yosemite Sam is not the first, and certainly won't be the last, who shift the blame to someone else. People shift the blame all the time, and they do so because they don't want to be judged for their actions. Instead, it's an alcoholic father who is to blame for one's alcohol addiction. It's the fact that someone was raised in poverty that he has ended up committing theft and murder. It's one's lack of education that led to the teen pregnancy and to the drug abuse. It's the lack of acceptance that caused him to take his own life. These and many more reasons are often offered so that people will be released from the wrongs that they have done. And the underlying belief is that if people hadn't been mistreated or abused by others, they wouldn't have lost their way. But their wrong acts are simply a result of their difficult situations. Now, as we look at the storyline of the book of Revelation, where Christ will reclaim the earth as his rightful possession, when we look at this book that tells us that the kingdom of this world will become his, we learn about Christ and what he will do and what he's doing now. For today, Christ stands among the candlesticks. He stands among his churches directing them. One day, he will approach the Father and receive the task of reclaiming the earth. He'll take the scroll. And in mercy, he is going to tighten the screws of judgment upon the people of the earth, giving them an opportunity to repent. But when enough time has been given, he will return to the earth and conquer his foes. That brought us all the way up to chapter 19. Now in chapter 20, we find out how Christ will act when he reigns as king of kings. Last week, we saw that Christ is going to reorganize the world's government. He's going to arrange a blessed state upon the earth for a thousand years. Now, there are many places in the Scripture that talk about that millennial reign of Jesus Christ, but when it comes to the book of Revelation, we really have very minimal details. We have the place, the time frame. We have those who are the governors, and we have the utopian nature of this time in general. We know that the place will be on the earth, Revelation 5.10. We know that it'll last a thousand years, chapter 20, verse two three four 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Six times it's mentioned. We have those who will govern. It's the redeemed who have died following Christ, who were subsequently raised to life in order to reign with Christ, Revelation 20, verse 4. As for the rest of the dead, who died not following Christ, they're going to have to wait until after the thousand years has come to an end. Then they'll be brought to life and be arraigned before Christ. And last, we have a brief, brief statement of what that time will be like. It will be a blessed state, blessed are those who partake in the first resurrection. So this book of Revelation reveals to us these details about the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. But there's a statement in the midst of those verses, verses 1 through 6, that is very curious. Something that I want each one of us to look at this morning. It tells us what is going to happen after the millennium. Look at verse 3. After saying that Satan will be bound, he'll be imprisoned in the abyss, it says, after that, after these things, the devil must be released for a little while. The release of the devil following the millennial reign of Christ is necessary according to God's plan. And you might think, well, why? It doesn't seem like releasing the devil is a good idea. I mean, what's the point of that? Keep him locked up. That's what we'd think. Well, I want you to remember, young people, all the way back to Genesis chapter 8. Back in Genesis chapter 8, Noah was on the ark because the world was covered by water. You recall in Genesis 8 that Noah released a dove. Do you remember why he did that? He released a dove in order to determine if the waters had subsided. So the first dove he sent out, and it came back with nothing. The second dove came back with an olive leaf, and the third dove did not return at all because it had found a home. And thereby Noah learned about the state of the the earth and the water being subsided. So now we come to Revelation 20, and the question is this. What is the release of Satan going to reveal? We know that it's going to lead to the final defeat of evil. But it's going to do so in such a way that the justice of Jesus Christ is magnified. And again and again in the book of Revelation, heaven has sung. And heaven's songs guide us in understanding our thoughts about Christ and his judgments. So in Revelation nineteen two, it says this, True and just are your judgments. And that's what we're going to find to be the case here. Christ is going to deal with evil once for all, Injustice, injustice. Christ is going to show his justice in the defeat of evil once for all. And we'll see this in two parts. First in verses 7 through 10, Christ is going to prove his justice by permitting the final insurrection. And then in verses 11 through 15, Christ will prove his justice by passing the final judgment. In both cases, Christ is going to prove justice how it will be when he reigns. It will be a reign of justice. So look with me at at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. The devil's going to be released after the millennium. Released from where? From the abyss. He's not on the earth. He's in the abyss. What what will he do when he is released? What will it reveal? Well, verses 7 through 9 are going to show us that the wicked are going to continue to act wickedly. Satan is still going to turn people against Christ. Look at verse 8. Satan will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So we see that prison did not change Satan for the better. Instead, the deceiver of the whole world is out to deceive the world again. And just like Jezebel and the church of Thyatira led people astray into immorality and idolatry, so Satan is going to lead people astray who had enjoyed and experienced the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And like the prophecy about Gog and Magog in Ezekiel, Satan is going to gather people to attack Israel. He's going to turn people against Jesus Christ. Wicked are still going to act wickedly. Satan is still going to deceive. And people are still going to rebel against Christ. Look at the end of verse 8 and verse 9. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That's the city of Jerusalem. And you look at that phrase, and you have to wonder to yourself, how did Satan find anyone who would follow him? let alone a number like the sand of the sea. I mean, People have been enjoying the rule of Christ on the earth, which is a blessed utopian state. Just think about that for a moment. People have lived for hundreds of years. The devil has been bound in the abyss so that there's been no temptation by the enemy. There has been peace everywhere in the earth, no war. This is a time of prosperity, not poverty. This is a time of knowledge, not ignorance. This is a time of justice, not partiality. I mean, honestly, what more could a person hope for? And how could someone possibly be led astray from such a situation under Christ's rule? While there has been no enemy without, there has still been an enemy within. For those who entered the millennial reign in their natural state or were born during the millennial reign of Christ, they still possess a sinful heart that wants absolute freedom. The perfect, peaceful, prosperous, and impartial rule of Christ is not enough for the enemy within. The depraved heart wants autonomy. People want to do what they want to do. People don't want to be told what to do. Those of us who are parents understand that very quickly. How many times have we seen a child grow up in a Christian home only to have him move out one day, and when he moves out, he leaves all of his faith behind? How many of my peers attended Christian schools and Christian colleges as their parents wanted them to do, but when they left, they left their faith behind at their first opportunity for freedom? You see, people are really good at pretending to be good for a while. They're really good at giving the appearance of submitting to God. They'll obey their parents. They'll go to church. They'll watch what they say. The list goes on. But when the opportunity presents itself, they bolt. And so it will be at the end of the thousand years. Those who pretended so long will turn against Christ. And it's the release of the devil that will reveal the depravity of the human heart. What that goes to show us is that God has a way of making sure that sin is found out. That's what's happening in Revelation 20. And that is a word of warning to those who are in the churches of Asia Minor who might be pretending to be devoted to Christ, but instead, as Christ knows and as he tells them, they need to repent. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in chapter 17, verse 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. And so John writes in Revelation 2.23 of Christ saying this, all the churches will know that I am who searches the mind and heart. So my prayer for us is that we would truly believe that there is nothing that can be hidden from Christ. We can't hide anything from him. Now, how was Christ going to respond to this insurrection? Well, he's not going to put up with it. He's not going to turn a blind eye to it. In verses 9 and 10, we see that Christ is going to continue to judge wickedness. The rebellious will die in flames. It says in verse 9 that they march against Jerusalem and surround it. But midway through, it says, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. It's going to be over in a moment. Unlike the great supper of God, which the birds attended... In this case, those who oppose Christ will be torched and there won't be anything left of them. As for the devil that deceived them, verse 10 shows us that the devil will be in flames forever. Verse 10 says the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the beast and the false prophet have been there for a thousand years. And they're still there a thousand years later. The fire did not consume them. And we will look at chapter 19, verse 20. We learn that it's not simply the lake of fire and brimstone of the lake of fire and sulfur. It's the lake that burns with sulfur. Now, some of you might know something about sulfur, but let me remind you. Sulfur at room temperature is a yellow material, and it smells like rotten eggs. Sulfur melts at 240 degrees, and then it turns red at about 480 degrees, like when you look at red lava that comes out of the volcano. At 832 degrees, it boils and turns dark brown. What the scriptures show us is that sulfur is the fuel for the lake of fire. We learn from these verses that the torment from this fire is continual. It says, day and night, forever and ever. There is no rest. There are no exits from this lake of fire. This unholy trinity deserves this justice from Jesus Christ, the lake of fire. And what Christ is going to prove is that he is just. And he proves his justice by permitting the final insurrection in verses 7 through 10. Now let's turn to the last section of this chapter in verses 11 through 15. Christ will prove his justice by passing final judgment. Sinners will be judged. We read throughout the scriptures that there is a time appointed for the dead to be judged. And now we learn what that courtroom will be like. Is it going to be a mockery of justice or a masterpiece of justice? Verses 11 and 13 show us that Christ is going to give to each according to his works. See, there's going to be no excuses when the books are open. So let's look at the scene. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place that was found for them. The final judgment is known by this reference to the great white throne. And while we might assume that the one seated on this throne is God the Father, we might think that because in Revelation 4 and 5, it's God the Father who sits upon the throne. He holds the scroll. But he's not the only one who's seated on this throne. We've already learned that from chapter 3, verse 21, because Christ is also seated on this throne with him. And when you turn the page to chapter 22, verse 1, you'll again see it's the throne of God and of the Lamb. So Christ and the Father are upon this throne. Now, which person or persons of the Godhead is going to judge? Truly, this is a very simple question. There is no debate as to its answer. Jesus said in John 5.22, The Father judges no one. Pretty plain and clear. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. So Paul later preached in the city of Athens, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we know who the judge is. Christ is the judge. And all the dead are going to come before him in that judgment. And when that happens, all will honor the son just as they honor the father. John 5.23 John place of authority is going to be plain to everyone. And what we read at the end of verse 11 is that at that time, the universe is going to dissolve. It's going to vanish like smoke, the Bible tells us. It's all going to melt away. It's going to be a fearsome scene, but it is going to be a fair scene. Look at verses 12 and 13, where it says and teaches that the dead are judged by what they have done. And I saw the dead, small and great standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done." Those who were redeemed and had died following Christ but were raised, they were part of the first resurrection. What we just read about was the second resurrection. In contrast to the first resurrection that was blessed, these dead are those who didn't follow the Lord and died. And they're gathered from everywhere, whether it's the sea or death or Hades. That is, Hades is hell, that temporary fiery place of punishment, they're gathered from everywhere. That is to show us there are no escapes from this judgment, from the great white throne judgment. No one will be left out. And no one will be wronged in this judgment. It will be according to the books. That is to say, it is according to what people have done. Now, when you talk to your friends, when I talk to my friends, you regularly hear them say that God will one day grant them entrance into heaven because of all the good deeds they have done. That's what they think. If I do my best to the Ten Commandments, God will let me into heaven. But the truth is that no one is going to enter heaven based on his deeds. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The point is, you don't get into heaven by being good. And when the books are opened, it will be plain that all mankind is not good. When the books are opened, it will be plain that the deeds of the dead are incriminating. When that happens, Christ will sentence the wicked to eternal punishment. There are going to be no exits for those who are thrown into the lake of fire. Look at verse 14. It said... Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So in verse 14, we learn that temporary punishment ends. Temporary punishment. This verse shows us that hell is not a final destination. Hell is like a layover for those who have died not following Christ. It is a temporary place for them. Hell will give up the dead to stand before God at the great white throne. But hell, death and hell, will go to the lake of fire. It will be done with. And verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And this shows us that permanent punishment begins. Those who died without Christ, those who are not named in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire That never goes out, and they'll never get out of it. And as we close, I want to bring to your attention how much of this passage in Revelation 20 is an echo of what Christ has already said to the churches. We've read it again and again in these final verses that they will be judged according to what they have done. Jesus said to the churches in chapter 2, verse 23, these words, All the churches will know that I am who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So what we find is that there is a standard for Christ's people. There's a standard for those who don't follow Christ. And according to Revelation, it's according to what they've done. say, how do we consider that? Are we actually saved by what we do? Well, no. That's not it at all. That's not what it means. There's a judgment according to the books, and there's a judgment according to the book of life. And that book of life has also been mentioned by Jesus when he spoke to the churches. Jesus promised the churches in chapter 3, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So it seems that there's two matters before us, and we have to consider what does it mean for us. Well, first, the book of life. We read in chapter 20 that those who are not written in that book are cast into the lake of fire. So the obvious question is, is your name in that book? And you have to be able to answer that for yourself. No one else can answer that for you. But Christ promises to those who will follow him that will never blot their name out of that book Instead, it says that I will declare, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And that is a glorious thought, to hear your name ringing in heaven that you belong there. So, The first matter we have to consider is, is your name in the book of life? The second matter I think we need to consider is, Given the fact that Christ said to the churches, they'll be judged by what they do. The point there is not the more you do right, the better chance you have to get into heaven. That's not the point. Instead, the point is Christ expects his people to do good works. As it would say in John chapter 15, Christ expects fruit of his people. So when Christ speaks to the churches of Asia Minor, and he says, I know your works. I'll judge you by your works. And on some of your works, they're not right. Repent. So what Christ is calling the churches to do is to look at what you're doing and see if it's in line with what I want for you to do. We need, as God's people to be striving to do what God wants us to do for his glory. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do all to the glory of God. While our eternal destiny does not rest on the good deeds that we do, that's up to the book of life, Christ still calls for his people to not be half-heartedly devoted, but fully devoted to him. Doing things for his glory. And if we find something in our life that isn't to his glory, we need to repent of that. Take responsibility for that. So many people in the world today, just like Yosemite Sam, they want to blame it on the devil. The devil made me do it. You know, the millennial reign of Christ is going to show when things are perfect in the world, when there is no enemy to tempt. The human heart is still wicked and deceitful. What we have to do as God's people is acknowledge that, repent of our sin, and humbly follow the Lord. That's what He desires of us. Instead of casting the blame on someone else. In that day, there will be no excuses. There will be no exits. Father, thank You for allowing us to see this this morning to see how Christ is going to deal when he comes, when he's the one who rules and reigns in the earth. Help what we learn of what will be to help fashion and shape what we do today. And indeed, you have led us of how we ought to live our lives and how we ought to please you. Father, we pray that when it comes to the things we do and what you have said, that we would be quick to turn away from our own way and turn to you and that you would giving a, give us a willing heart to do your will and to please you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.